Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist. Uh, so, you know, in these episodes, I like sharing what I'm reading. And I just finished a really good book called The Professor and the Madman, A Tale of Murder, Insanity, and the Making of the Oxford English Dictionary. It traces the lives of two of the most influential people involved in creating the Oxford English Dictionary, the, the OED. Um, James Murray, who is the professor in the title, and Dr. W.C. Minor who is the madman in the title, and who will sort of be the springboard for today's episode, which is on schizophrenia. Um, I'm always giving shout outs to word nerds on these episodes. So it's only fitting that today's episode ties the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary to psychopathology. And this is a story that's going to involve murder, uh, the branding of someone's face, and the amputation of a penis. Uh, Yeah, you heard that right. So fascinating story. Uh, let's get started. Um, W.C. Minor, William Chester Minor, was born to American parents who had moved to Ceylon, which is present-day Sri Lanka, as missionaries. As a boy, he would watch nude girls and women bathe in the ocean, and he felt like this filled him with impure thoughts, which is not a good thing for the son of a missionary. Sadly, Minor's mom died when he was young, And as a teenager, he moved to the United States to be raised by relatives and to attend various military and boarding academies. Eventually, he enrolled in Yale Medical School near the outbreak of the American Civil War, and by now he was almost 30 years old. And upon graduation, he enlisted in the Union Army as an assistant surgeon. Minor was assigned to the Eastern Theater of the War uh, and went into Northern Virginia. And this was in the last year of the war when Grant's Union Army was pushing Lee's Confederate Army back towards the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. The war had already been going on for three years, and people on both sides were tired and fatigued. Desertion among soldiers was common, and Grant, in an attempt to end the war as soon as possible, became bolder in his attacks. In the Battle of the Wilderness, which is so named because of the dense undergrowth that surrounded the battlefield, the Union Army suffered tremendous casualties. The undergrowth was really thick and would catch fire with gunpowder, which led to many deaths by burning, and especially of wounded men who couldn't escape. And if you'll remember in my episode on PTSD, I touched on fire and death and war and how those sorts of deaths that someone really isn't prepared for seem to leave an especially traumatic impact on the person who witnessed them. So it's very possible that Minor witnessed many of these uh, men burned alive in the Battle of the Wilderness heard the cries of the wounded, and treated many burned victims in nearby field hospitals. So Grant had a lot more men at his disposal than the Confederates, and he was able to take on more casualties. But this didn't sit right with a lot of his men, who didn't want to see themselves as expendable cannon fodder. So many Union soldiers began to desert, especially immigrant soldiers from Ireland, who had enlisted in droves in cities like New York and Boston, Many of these Irish soldiers didn't have a vested interest in the war or in the United States. They just wanted, you know, a steady paycheck and military experience that they could bring back to Ireland and use to overthrow the occupying British government. Anyways, one of these Irish deserters was caught after the Battle of the Wilderness, and one of the possible punishments for desertions was to be branded. And the duties of branding often uh, fell on the regimental surgeon. And so anyways, Minor was called upon to brand this poor Irishman with a D for deserter on his face. And this not only left an obvious physical imprint on the poor Irishman, but also left a psychological imprint on Minor. Anyways, after this, uh, things really started to unravel for Minor. He became paranoid, especially paranoid of Irishmen. 
And he started to have impure thoughts about those nude sunbathing uh, girls from Sri Lanka. And the Civil War ended, and he was stationed in New York City, where he started visiting prostitutes nightly, and likely contracted multiple venereal diseases. Uh, He would also carry his service revolver with him when he was off duty, which was against uh, military regulations and was kind of worrisome. And the Army did become really worried about his behaviors, and they decided to reassign him to Fort Baracus, which was a relatively backwoods fort in the Florida Panhandle near present-day Pensacola, to sort of hide him away. Uh, and trivia fact, I, I think the Apache warrior Geronimo was held prisoner near Fort Baracus at the time. But I think Geronimo was actually held at neighboring Fort Pickens. I'll have to fact-check myself on that. Anyways, Miner continued to decompensate. He's about 33 years old now, and the Army placed him in the care of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which was essentially an asylum. And it was in Washington, D.C. And Miner stayed here for almost a year and a half. Uh, The supervisors of the asylum gave him relatively free reign. He could come and go pretty freely from St. Elizabeth's, and he could stroll the streets of Washington, past the White House, and past the Capitol building whose dome had just been completed a couple years earlier. I think the dome of the Capitol was completed in 1866. Again, you have to fact check me on that. Um, He could also roam into the hills around Washington and paint. Uh, Painting and watercolors were a passion for Miner. Anyways, uh, he wasn't really getting better, but he was released and he decided to move to London, England for a new start. So he set sail for England and importantly, he brought a revolver with him. Anyways, Miner uh, settled in Lambeth. And Lambeth around this time was a blue-collar, working-class, pretty poor and crime-ridden, overcrowded area just outside of London, but still part of Greater London. And after only a short time in Lambeth one morning, he shot and killed a man named George Merritt. Uh, George Merritt was walking home to his pregnant wife and six kids after working a night shift at a Lambeth brewery. And this was a sensational news story in London because homicides involving firearms were pretty rare. And W.C. Minor and his revolver were taken into police custody pretty quickly. Uh, Minor admitted to killing Merritt, and he said that he thought Merritt had broken into his apartment and sort of delusionally ranted that he thought Merritt was an Irishman out to get him. Again, tying back to his branding experience in the Battle of the Wilderness. Uh, Minor was put on trial and found not guilty of George Merritt's murder by reason of insanity and was placed in an asylum called Broadmoor Hospital in the town of Crowthorne. Um, Tragic story, American expats contributed to fundraising efforts for George Merritt's wife and children, and everyone was really apologetic and generally felt bad. Uh, Minor was more pitied than he was hated, and the U.S. Army continued to send his pension to the Broadmoor Hospital to care for him. And in Broadmoor, William or uh, Minor, William Minor, W.C. Minor, was given a sort of life of luxury with uh, with his pension. He was given two rooms instead of one, and one of the rooms served as his study and his library. And he continued to watercolor and paint. He could stroll the grounds of Broadmoor. Uh, he could take in visitors for tea, including uh, Merritt's widow, who forgave him. And at one time, Minor even had a servant. Uh, By day, he was sort of a perfect Victorian gentleman, uh, but at night, his delusions and paranoia would return, and he would place furniture in front of his door, uh, convinced that people, including uh, the feared Irish, uh, were out to get him. Uh, He was also convinced that dozens of pygmies were living under his floorboards and would roam his room at night. And after Wilbur Wilbur and Orville Wright um, had their first flight, 
of the airplane, he became convinced that someone was abducting, abducting him at night, taking him by airplane to various cities in Europe and as far away as Sri Lanka, and forcing him to do unspeakable acts with girls and women, again bringing back his early experiences with the nude, ocean-bathing, sunbathing girls of Sri Lanka. All right. During the day, Miner would read a lot. Um, he was a voracious reader. He had the money from his army pension to buy just about any book that he wanted, and he maintained a very, very well-stocked library. He would also receive various newspapers, and likely in one of these newspapers, he encountered advertisements, or advertisements as they call them in, in England, right, from James Murray of Oxford, who's putting together the Oxford English Dictionary and needed a bunch of volunteers to read works in English all the way back to the 16th century, log words and quotations from these works, and then send these words and quotations back to the scriptorium. The scriptorium was sort of the working headquarters of Murray and his philologists. And philology studies language use and the meaning of language. So it involved the detective work of finding the first uses of a word and how that word was used and then tracing the lineage of that word back to the present day, which was super important to putting together a dictionary. Anyways, Miner answered the call. He had a lot of time on his hands and would meticulously document words and quotes. Miner's outstanding work quickly caught the attention of Murray, and he became first among the army of volunteers who were contributing to the creation of the dictionary. And Murray was so impressed after a few years, he really wanted to meet this Dr. W.C. Miner in person. He didn't really know anything about him, so he boarded a train for Crowthorne to track down uh, the return address of Miner at Broadmoor. And when Murray arrived in Crowthorne, he was surprised to find, after asking for directions, that Broadmoor was an insane asylum. Uh, so undeterred, Murray went on to Broadmoor, and according to one story, he asked to see the director of the hospital. Upon meeting the director of the hospital, according to the story, Murray enthusiastically greeted the director and said how impressed he was to meet the famous Dr. W.C. Minor, one of the driving forces behind the dictionary. Uh, Murray was reportedly taken aback when the director said that he was not Dr. W.C. Minor and that Minor was, in fact, a patient at Broadmoor. Anyways, when Murray met the real Minor, they developed a friendship. They both had these wispy, white, sort of Rip Van Winkle beards, uh, were both highly intelligent and both had a love for language. Miner would continue to contribute to the dictionary for years to come. Unfortunately, he also continued to decompensate. He continued to think about uh, the girls from Sri Lanka and thought that he was abducted at night and forced to perform these unspeakable sexual acts with girls and women. And during one of these episodes, he cut off his penis about an inch from the base, uh, which is known as an autopenectomy. And luckily, he had been a surgeon, so he sort of staunched the wound, so there was very little bleeding, and he did not die. And he was also able to urinate once he healed up. Anyways, by this time, it was 1902, and Miner was an old man. He was relatively harmless and more pitiable than anything. And this started a push from his friends, both in the U.S. and in England, to allow Miner to move back to the U.S. to spend his remaining years. And these requests were uh, initially denied. Uh, but after years, um, then-Home Secretary Winston Churchill approved Miner's request and allowed him to move back to the United States, where he spent his last few years in relative peace in Connecticut before dying in 1920. So fascinating history. And I think this leads us well into our discussion on schizophrenia. Today, Miner would be diagnosed with schizophrenia, but during this time, we had a very limited understanding of the condition. In Miner's time, it was called dementia precox, a term coined by German psychiatrist Emil Krapelin in 1893. And Emil Krapelin was hugely important in our modern conceptualizations of psychology and psychopathology. Because before him, 
Many people thought of psychopathology as being linked to morals, right? So many of the treatments were barbaric. You can go back and listen to an early episode on the po- of this podcast to hear about some of those barbaric treatments. Uh, and these treatments thought to uh, uh, sought to reform people. Uh, Kraplan understood that you know biology was involved, uh, which was revolutionary at the time. And his biological understanding was a little bit rudimentary, though, by today's standards. He knew that some people responded to lithium treatments, so he theorized there was a condition known as manic depression. And he knew that some people didn't respond to lithium, uh, that they started gradually, cognitively deteriorating in early adulthood. And he called this condition dementia precox. Uh, in order to distinguish it from senile dementia, uh, senile dementia, you know, developing in old age. Dementia precox literally means early flowering cognitive decline. And Kraplan noted two forms of this dementia precox, a catatonic form, which tended to involve lack of movement, and a paranoid form. In the first decade of the 1900s, Swiss uh, psychologist and psychiatrist Eugene Bleuler relabeled dementia precox and coined the term schizophrenia. Schizophrenia literally means in Greek split mind, which is sort of a misnomer for the condition. I think it's the reason a lot of people confuse schizophrenia with dissociative identity disorder. And there's actually a movement to rename the condition as Kraplan syndrome. Now, Bleuler also coined the term autism, by the way, which we'll talk about in a future episode. So we've come a long way in our understanding of schizophrenia over the past 100 years. Since Kraplan and since Bueller, or Bleuler, I say Bueller because I'm thinking of Ferris Bueller's day off. Um, in the DSM-5, we have a family of disorders called schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders. And you notice the term uh, psychotic here. And I've brushed on psychosis in previous episodes, but I haven't really defined it. Psychosis is a break with reality. According to the National Association of the Mentally Ill, it involves disruptions to a person's thoughts and perceptions that make it difficult for them to recognize what's real and what isn't. It's often characterized by hallucination, hallucinations, which I can't pronounce and which we'll talk about in a second, and its lifetime prevalence is three in a hundred people. All right, so hallucinations. Hallucinations are perceptual disturbances. Uh, they deal with the five senses. It's important to distinguish them from delusions, which deal with thoughts and beliefs. You can have visual hallucinations, which deal with sight, auditory hallucinations, which deal with sound, and are the most common form of hallucinations. Uh, Tactile hallucinations, which deal with touch. Gustatory hallucinations, which deal with taste. And olfactory hallucinations, which deal with smell. So hallucinations deal with the five senses. Delusions are disturbances in thoughts or beliefs. Like hallucinations, we have different types of delusions. We have persecutory delusions where you think someone is out to get you. You think that you're going to be harmed or harassed by others. A miner had a persecutory delusion in that he thought Irishmen were out to get him. We have referential delusions, delusions of reference, where you believe that certain gestures, environmental cues, comments, or conversations are directed specially at you. You know how uh, Coca-Cola has bottles that say, share a Coke with, like, John. If you thought that Coke was labeling uh, these um, bottles especially for you, if you think that it's some sort of special uh, sign, that's a referential delusion. Often these involve people thinking that television or radio messages are just for you. Or you might be out in public and think that people are talking about you. Uh, we have grandiose delusions or delusions of grandiosity where you might think that you're Superman or that you're invincible. You might think that you have exceptional wealth, you have exceptional abilities, or that you're exceptionally famous. 
And this is dangerous. Uh, it can lead to accidental suicide. Um, we have erotomanic delusions where you think that other people or that everyone is in love with you. And we have delusions of control where you're sort of a puppet on a string. Someone else is controlling you. Delusions of control can involve thought withdrawal where you think someone like aliens or something might be going into your brain and purposefully taking away thoughts or memories. Or you could have thought insertion where you think someone might be inserting certain thoughts and beliefs into your brain, maybe through a computer chip or through a vaccine. So this brings us to schizophrenia. You have to have two or more of the following symptoms over a six month period. And you have to have at least one of the three, one of the first three symptoms that I'm going to list. All right. So the symptoms are delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior, and negative symptoms. All right, so I just mentioned negative symptoms. With schizophrenia, we draw the distinction between positive and negative symptoms. Positive symptoms are things that you do, things you actively do, like hallucinate, experience delusions, or behave oddly. Whereas negative symptoms are things that you don't do, like not speaking as much, which we call poverty of speech, or we call alogia, or inability to do important activities, which we call avolition, or lack of having facial expressions, sort of having a neutral mask-like facial expression, which we call flat affect. Most people think positive symptoms are associated with poor outcomes because they you know, can see fluidly odd behavior, but it's actually negative symptoms that are associated with the worst outcomes. All right, so we have five major subtypes of schizophrenia. We have the paranoid type. Uh, we have the disorganized type, which is characterized by disorganized speech and behavior. And with this disorganized type, you might have word salad. Word salad is where speech just sort of seems to be a jumbled combination of words. Um, it's nonlinear. Uh, we have catato catatonic type. And catatonic type is characterized by motor abnormalities. People might be extremely rigid and will sit still like a statue for hours on end. Or they might have this sort of waxy posture that can be rearranged. Um, you can look up videos of catatonia on YouTube, and there's some great videos that are out there. Uh, the motor involvement here is one of the reasons we think the neurotransmitter dopamine might be involved in schizophrenia. Anyways, continuing on with our types, we have the undifferentiated type, which might be a combination of types or not, might not be any real apparent type at all. And then we have the residual type, where you used to meet for one of the types, but you don't anymore. All right. Let's talk about the development and course of schizophrenia. Childhood schizophrenia is extremely, extremely rare. Diagnoses of childhood schizophrenia should raise some eyebrows. Uh, estimated prevalence of childhood schizophrenia is only 1 in 10,000 children. And most of the kids that are diagnosed are misdiagnosed with schizophrenia and actually have autism spectrum disorder. In fact, there was a TV show called Born Schizophrenic a few years ago. And upon a later examination, uh, the kids featured on this show probably didn't actually have schizophrenia. But you can show pre-morbid or prodromal symptoms in childhood or adolescence. The peak age of onset for schizophrenia is the early to mid-20s for males and the late 20s for females. So Dr. W.C. Minor fit right into this age of onset. And this is scary, especially for college students and for grad students. The prevalence of schizophrenia is thought to be 0.3 to 0.7% of the population. The prevalence is slightly lower in females than in males, and this is one disorder that appears to have a very, very strong genetic contribution. Treatment is going to involve a combination of therapies, psychopharmaceuticals like the use of neuroleptics or antipsychotics, 
family therapy, social skills therapy, and interventions for medication compliance. As oftentimes people think the, the medication um, is kind of a ploy for thought withdrawal or thought insertion. Anyways, I could talk a lot more about schizophrenia. And I didn't really get into schizoaffective disorder, which is essentially schizophrenia plus depression or bipolar disorder, or schizophreniform disorder, which is sort of schizophrenia light, uh, where you have symptoms for at least a month, but less than the six months you need for full-blown schizophrenia. Um, anyways, lots of great minds like W.C. Minor or John Nash, who's featured in A Beautiful Mind, or Philip K. Dick likely had schizophrenia. So I'm open to doing more episodes on this in the future if there's requests. Uh, but we're out of time for this one. So until the next time, take care and stay well.